should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Tuesday. It is Tuesday, January 12th, 2016. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Following our producer is in studio. Hello, Michelle. You might be guessing, you know, where John Zipper is these days because it's Tuesdays and we usually have John Zipper of Commonwealth Club with us. Um, but, you know, we're, we're ramping up and uh, we're gearing up for great, great shows. And so he'll pop in uh, probably by, by next week. So if you miss him, you can head to CommonwealthClub.org and let him know. Um, I am excited for, for this week and kind of, you know, what we're doing with the show and uh, the interviews and the subjects that we'll have to, to address some things that I think a lot of people are concerned about. And that has a lot to do with racial injustice. It has to do with a lot with economic injustice. And, um, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to talk about these things for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I grew up, as I've mentioned here on the show, extremely poor mm-hmm. and um and and you have those dreams that one, one day it will all be better or one day you'll actually be accepted or uh one day you know you'll you'll not be this poor um and even now I'm 33 years old and I kind of find myself even feeling like I'm I'm much more poor I, I may have my own money I'm not living off of my mom mm-hmm. or something like that but I feel more poor in terms of feeling paralyzed like 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 there's nothing there what whatever it is that we're doing we're not uh as a country we're not doing it right because you look around and there's still that same um feeling of sadness do you ever think that way or maybe i was a little too i thought too much as a little kid uh that's not you it's it's understandable um i i felt the same way when i was a little kid you know growing well i was born in a different country and then coming over here i was like whoa, such a change. So um, me being an immigrant, you know, with my parents not knowing English, it was tough growing up. Mm -hmm. So I've thought about those things like, why can't my parents learn English? You know, Mm -hmm. what is it that about us that um, I can't do the things that I want to do? I can't buy the things that I can't buy. Mm -hmm. Um, So until in college, which I learned why these things are an issue. Mm yeah, you know, I, I because of today's guest, I thought about just some of the uh, things that, that you start to reflect. Uh, and, and we're leading up to Martin Luther King. And when I grew up in Stockton, California. I mean, the first time I was pulled over by police, um, I was 16 years old. And mm-hmm. my mom had, uh, well, we I shared a car with my sisters. It was a red prelude. And I remember being pulled over. And the first thing the police officer wanted to know was if I had marijuana in the car. Oh. And um, long story short, you know, took me all the way to the truancy center and like whatnot and called my school. And I happened to be a stellar student <laughs> with exceptional grades and had never gotten into trouble. And so I did not get in trouble for the for model that. minority myth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 it gave me this realization that, you know, that is the first thing uh, in, in I don't I'm not going to generalize, but I'm going to say that it seems to be. Um, it seems to be the problem in which if your first thought as a police officer, if you look at someone and you're already biased, mm-hmm. um, the chances of me, uh, you know, being uh, innocent, quote unquote, you know, are out the door. So let's get today's show started. We're going to have an incredible conversation and these conversations will take place all throughout this entire week to hashtag reclaim MLK. And we'll explain that in a little bit. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit F- PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
Our next guest is Kat Brooks, who's with the Anti-Police Terror Project, and it's a group of concerned and committed institutions, organizations, and individuals dedicated to ending state-sanctioned murder and violence perpetuated against black, brown, and poor people. Let's welcome Kat to the program. Kat, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I mentioned hashtag Reclaim MLK. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day is, is coming up on Monday, and uh, lots of people stay home from work. Um, but your particular organization is looking to to create some actual direct action. Tell us about it. Sure. So last year we answered a national call from the Ferguson Action Committee to reclaim King's radical legacy, right? On King Day, people either, like you mentioned, stay home from work or they're encouraged to you know, do charity work or volunteer in their communities. Um, but given what's happening across the country and, and the, the big resistance to repression, particularly around state terror, we responded to a call to embody and embrace King's radical legacy of direct action and civil disobedience. And how that manifested last year was 96 hours of direct action. There were shutdowns and teachings and musical shows, um, about 60 of them that happened over a four-day period, which then culminated in uh, a Reclaiming King's Radical Legacy march, which really ties economic terror to police terror that brought out about 7,000 people. And so we had a conversation amongst ourselves this year about, did it make sense for us to repeat that again? Were the conditions similar or similar enough for that to happen again? And as we looked at what's happening on both sides of the bridges, um, you know, here OPD has killed a string of black men since just June of this year. Of course, in San Francisco, the recent execution of Mario Wood, rampant gentrification. And we said, yes. While the state is making small concessions across the country, it's nowhere near enough, and so it was time to unify the people in another call to rise up. Mm-hmm. So that's what's going to happen um, <laughs> starting on Friday. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, starting on Friday, we'll start the second annual 96 Hours of Direct Action. We've been much more intentional about engaging San Francisco this year um, and you know, calling it you know, Bridging the Bay, um, as our stories are so similar on both sides. And the last year, the march went um, through East Oakland. This year, we're talking about gentrification in West Oakland. So the march will start Monday at 11 o'clock at Oster Grant Plaza in Oakland, which is on the corner of 14th and Broadway. It will move through West Oakland, really having conversations with the people in those communities, um, go through Emeryville to uh, lift up Yvette Henderson, who was murdered in February this year, and land um, at the Showmont. Now let's let's dive into this uh, discussion about MLK and his radical legacy. I I, I feel like there are people who are tuning in um, who might argue that MLK was not considered a radical. Let's let's dive into that and let's let's discuss that in context of you know what's happening today. I mean, a lot of us who are part of uh, the fight today in what we're talking about do feel that MLK was in in fact radical. He was absolutely radical. When you look at the at the times and the the what he was engaged in at that time, you know, sit-ins and um, essentially shutting things down, right? Because things couldn't move as folks were forcing the conversation about um, integration. Um, his his movement was built on a bold vision that was radical, principled, and uncompromising, right? Um, uh, ultimately, what happened was that the state clouded the efforts, right? They softened his image and sanitized it and commercialized it. But we have to remember that he was consistently pushing the envelope. He wasn't afraid to go to jail, and his call was to challenge the system, right? That Mm -hmm. it wasn't just, I have a dream, but that I'm willing to put my life on the line for this dream. I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, explain to the listeners and, and, and people who are tuning in, Progressive Voices is all over the country, and uh, it's also online, so so people around the world can listen to this. But some people might not understand this idea of divesting out of systems that oppress, um, you know, people and, and, and economically and racially, especially black people. When, we, when we're talking about uh, joining, you know, the anti-police terror project in 96 hours of direct action— you know, specifically, how does that contribute to divesting in systems that oppress? So we are firm believers that the only way that the police are going to stop killing black, brown, and poor people is if we stop engaging with them, right? And we don't purport that that can happen overnight. We're very clear that white supremacy creates conditions in our communities um, that do give rise to violence or crime, et cetera. But I want to be really clear what I just said, that white supremacy creates conditions in our community that give rise to these things. And in the current paradigm, the lie that we've been sold is that only the police 
right, can solve these issues for, for, for us. But when we look at the reality that America um, locks up more people, right, than any other country in the world, and yet we still have rising crime rates, it's time for us to start questioning that logic and start envisioning a community where we're not actually relying on the state, but empowering the people to rely on themselves, right, to, to build new and different systems. And so when we're talking about divesting, that's what we mean, and we're talking about a process over time. And civil disobedience is a part of that. Civil disobedience is an empowering um, event, particularly the first time that someone does it, right? The first time that someone really challenges um, the status quo, challenges the system that they've been told to respect, no matter what, mm-hmm. no matter that this, this particular entity disrespects you, incarcerates your family, beats you, terrorizes you, right? We're trained from a very young age to not challenge or question this particular system. And so oftentimes civil disobedience is sort of the gateway, right, to engaging people in longer str- struggles for social justice. You know, in the uh, there is a page. There's a call to action page on the website antipoliceterrorproject.org, in which there are the names that you had mentioned. A couple of those who had um, who had been murdered or, or died in police custody uh, or police hands. And uh, you know, when you call for the removal of, say, the town's uh, sheriff or the police officer who was involved in these things, and even up to the mayor. Um, Removing them, you know, immediately. Uh, how how what how can that impact the message even more? I mean, why call for them, um, knowing that they are part of the problem, but they're not the the entire you know situation, the, the entire problem. Well, particularly in Oakland, right? So we have called for the resignation of Mayor Libby Schaff. Um, and while the term of Quan had issues as well, very very public issues. Um, we know that, that for the 18 months before Libby Chef, there were no officer-involved shootings. Now, that doesn't mean that the police were being nice to black and brown and poor people in Oakland, but it does mean that there was um, pressure, we believe, from above, right? Like, you, you can't continue to kill people. Um, starting in June, we call it Libby's Bloody Summer. Um, she, gave, she was given a mandate, right, to police officers, keep this city safe. Make it attractive for developers, right? Make it attractive to developers. Help business come here. And we believe that that mandate has resulted in increased terror on communities of color by police. Mm. Um, If we look at what she has been doing in terms of development, right, um, nothing to stop the tide of gentrification. She is not a mayor for the people. Her very first day, but we, we knew this was coming because her very first day in office, in the midst of a national movement against police terror, Libby Schaaf chose to spend her entire first day in office with law enforcement. Not community groups, not students, not teachers, right? Not, not, not just your average folk that she's supposed to be representing in Oakland, but her entire day was spent with the Oakland Police Department, which was a clear signal to us of what was to come, and she's delivered on that signal. So we do call for, for her resignation because at the end of the day, she's their boss. She is responsible, you know, it's just like at your job. The buck stops, you know, with, with the person at the top, and she's the person at the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't deserve to be in office, right? But the police chief, I mean, to me, that's obvious. You know, chief sir is a criminal. Um, you know, Mario Woods is, is the latest demonstration in the horrific abuses by San Francisco Police Department. But just look at the last few months the racist text message scandal, the the brother who was beaten, you know, in front of the Twitter building. I mean, you could go on and on and on. We've got to start letting these people know that just because you were elected into office does not mean you're safe. You were elected, you can be removed. Thank you so much for that. My, my, uh, my mic just cut out for a little bit. I'm sorry about that, Kat. Um, I think this is a good time for us to take a quick break as I want to, when we come back, I want to dive into this conversation a little bit deeper. So stick around with us, okay? The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. 
Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is Kat Brooks, who's with the Anti-Police Terror Project right here in the Bay Area. And there is a call to action to participate in 96 hours of direct action uh, to reclaim the radical legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Kat, I, you know, I, there's this big uh, conversation happening in the Bay Area right now um, that touches on not just, you know, racial injustice, but also economic injustice. And then there's this whole, what I call like the, I don't want to say perfect storm, but the murderous storm, the, uh, it's, it's horrible, this storm of, um, you know, the tech boom and then the biotech companies and all these corporations who are now living here who are displacing people, uh, there was something that I also read last night that there is this this need to join in something like 96 Hours of Direct Action because it bleeds into the fact that uh, there's this uh, whitewashing of the Bay Area that's happening. I'm trying really, really, really hard to be, you know, to use politically correct terms. But at this point, it's so <laughs> it's so hard to do that. <laughs> right, right. What are what are your feelings about, you know, just that statement alone, uh, the whitewashing of the Bay Area? I mean, I, I think it's it's an accurate, you know, it's perfectly descriptive, and it's um, it's interesting because what the state is successfully doing, I believe, right, is pitting progress against the people, right. So if you speak out against gentrification, or if you talk about the fact that these, you know, this massive influx of primarily white uh, middle class people are coming into communities like Oakland, then you know basically demolish San Francisco and pushing people of color out, then you are somehow um, anti-progress or anti-development or anti-bringing revenue into the city as if it's a zero-sum game. And our challenge to the state is that that's a lie, right? That you can have progress and development and bring economic growth to a city without displacing um, black and brown and poor people. And and that it is their duty, and it's actually not on us, right, to develop a plan. That we actually elect you, and you get paid salaries that are, um, you know, beyond well enough to live off of to develop plans that both um, support the growth and development of the city and provide jobs to the people who are already here. And that's the conversation we need to be pushing, you know, in our city, our city halls, and and at the state level as well. Well, let's uh, let's talk. I, I like that you said that. You know, we're not. It shouldn't be upon us to come up with that plan. Um, when you when you look at even the mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Ed Lee, and his um, and his uh, inaugural or his inauguration event, uh, there was a protest, and I think a, a, an author or a writer had mentioned that it 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 was. Um, he had never seen this type of protest before in San Francisco uh, as far as the mayor. And I have this like really stupid question though. I mean, is he really the only person that's qualified for this position or is there something else happening that I'm not understanding in which we can't get someone to run against him? Um, kind of, you know, or, or maybe you can help me understand that this is the a, a direct example of the system against us, the, whatever that system is, politically speaking, in, in which, um, you know, they've, they've created a machine in, in which even if we had a, a candidate willing to step up uh, and and campaign against someone like Edley, we would lose. I mean, I, I want to say a couple of things. The first is that I I, I just want to say you know, I don't live in San Francisco, and so I don't want to you know propose to be an expert on the city's dynamics. Um, sure, sure. 
And I do want to, uh, and I also want to highlight the Last 2% Coalition, who are the young activists who really kicked off that protest and give them, you know, big ups for doing so. Um, and then, you know, here in Oakland, our last mayoral election, I actually worked on the Dan Siegel campaign, um, which was an incredibly progressive campaign, um, you know, further to the left than any other candidates. I don't know if you followed it, but we had like 80,000 people running for mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this very uh, interesting thing happened was, you know, it was very clearly Dan was to the to the left of everybody. But as the messaging, right, about power to the people and um, economic uh, equity and, you know, the messaging around education, as that started to resonate with folks, what we saw was all of the other candidates start to move slightly left. And part of why Luby won was because, yes, there is a machine. There was a machine that is made up of spin doctors, right, and financial gurus, and, you know, Jerry Brown, she's very much part of the Jerry Brown machine, um, went to work. And they went to work, and they were able to rebrand her right before our very eyes so that she looked as though she was progressive enough to just capture the the tip of the things that the Siegel campaign was talking about, but not so much that she alienated, right, protect people and, and the upper income people and the folks that live in the hills. And, and I believe that machine exists everywhere. And yes, Edley is a part of that machine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've been doing this for years. They have an agenda. Um, they can raise the money. They can hire the experts. And, and that's what happens. And they say what the people need them to say. Just, to, just enough of it. They make just enough promises that they know, or at least they knew before this new era, you know, sweeping this country, that nobody was going to hold them accountable to. Right. So what if they said they're going to reform the police department, right? Unless the masses rise up by the thousands and push that issue, it's not going to happen. And that's what politicians, not only in California, but across the country, have been banking on, right, since the, I'd say, you know, the end of the Black Liberation Movement. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about that reform very quickly. I mean, that seems to be on top of, uh, well, at least the media is writing about, you know, the, the potential reform, although, you know, some might say that uh, the, the cameras now installed on police is a form of or a type of reform. But what, what needs to happen? I mean, I, I'm sure this question is redundant and, and quite ignorant because um, it, it could it, it there's probably an easy answer to it. Uh, but everything that's wrong or broken with it, what do you feel? How do you how do you want to articulate it? So it's not a dumb question, um, and it's not an easy answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I would start by saying that my belief and the beliefs of the folks that I work with is that the system is actually not broken, that the system is actually doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's important for us to remember that the very foundation of America is slavery, is race-based capitalism. There was nothing here, I mean, nothing here in terms of this government before that, right? We had our indigenous folks and how they were living. But once this, this land was colonized, it was colonized within the, the context of race-based capitalism. That's our DNA. That's what we know. And race-based capitalism means that unless you're white, your job, right, is to provide... Uh, economic gain for the ruling class. Um, and that's still the same today. And so all of the institutions and structures and practices and policies of this country fundamentally come from there. Mm. So when we're to, so our belief is that everything has to like come down, right? And we have to start all over again. Hence what we were talking about earlier about small stages of divestment, right? Getting communities of color to, to start to find ways to stop investing in a system that does not work for them that has no intention of working for them and will never work for them. But that's a piece-by-piece. That's a long-term goal, right? Um, In the meantime, we have got to enact radical reforms that stem the tide of black and brown bodies that are dropping at the hands of the state. There's an epidemic. If what is happening in America was happening anywhere else in the world, there would be meetings in Washington. They would be talking about the evil uh, dictator that was murdering his own people, to be a plan, you know, do we send in troops, do we send in financial aid, what do we do? The demonization of this ruler. But in this country, there is an epidemic of police terror that is sweeping this nation and has been sweeping this nation, and we want to sweep it underneath the rug. So we have to, to figure out what can we do within the current context as we're working towards change that's going to stem the tide of black bodies either dropping dead in the streets of America or being pushed into American concentration camps. Right, what we call prisons here. 
Mm-hmm. Those are two very pressing issues. Um, and so along those lines, we do engage in conversations around body cameras. Though we know we've been witnessing police behaving badly on cameras and, you know, Rodney King, right? 1992, black people across this country thought, we got him, finally, it's on tape. What has been happening to us in our communities forever is finally on tape. So surely the system has got to work for us. That's why the country exploded in flames when it didn't, right? right. Um, we saw Oscar Grant murdered on camera. It took three years of protracted struggle with the state for Johannes Mesley to go do six months in prison on involuntary manslaughter. There was nothing involuntary about him cuffing Oscar, slamming him on the ground, and shooting him in the back, right? So while we know that body cameras are not the answer, they're a step towards they're a tool in the toolbox for communities to be able to hold police departments accountable, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to push back against the narrative, oh, I was afraid for my life and I thought he was reaching for a gun. Um, talking about use of force policies is another step of radical reform that we, we do have to engage in. We look at the, um, I believe he was Ethiopian, it might be Eritrean, I apologize, um, immigrant here in Oakland that was murdered this summer. Um, he got into an altercation with a, a police officer, a female, and he hit her with a chain. She shot him seven times, sent her mass. So the question is not, did there need to be consequences for Jonas mm-hmm. for, for his behavior? The question becomes, was getting hit with the chain, um, was the appropriate response for getting hit with the chain being shot seven times, sent her mass? Well, what the police will tell you is that's how they're trained. Any eminent danger to lives at all, of any degree, they're trained to shoot center mass. We've got to be having conversations about that and challenging that narrative. We have to be asking the question, 18 years on the force, the only way that this officer knew how to deal with the situation was to murder this man, and then they allowed him to bleed out, right? right? Um, we have to be conversations, have conversations about who's patrolling our streets, right? And from what cities? In Oakland, we've got people from Walnut Creek and Concord, and you know, people come here all over the place because it's one of the most highly paid police departments in the in the, uh, in the country. Right. But they don't know anything about Oakland or the people who live here or black people in general, right? I mean, so there's all these conversations that we need to be having. We need to be having conversations about what we send people to prison for, right? Low-level drug offenses, nonviolent crimes make up the majority of people that are locked up in, our car- in, in, in concentration camps in this country. Are there no other options? We can't talk about rehabilitation, right? What, what are things that we know are going to strengthen communities instead of... Um, debilitate and disable disable them, perpetuating the cycle that we're engaging with the state. So those are some of the things, you know, that we're, that we're talking about in terms of shifting the paradigm right now as we work towards dismantling it altogether. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wanted to ask this question, you know, it, a lot of, I mentioned the corporations and this tech boom, and so the, the face of who actually lives here, the residents, you know, it's, it's very different. And when you have, <clears throat> excuse me, when you have, um, uh, uh, you know, actions like this, direct action, uh, many of these residents now call it a disruption, and which is the purpose of what we're doing here, right? We want to disrupt, uh, but they have that uh, annoyed uh, <laughs> um, response to what's happening here and not really understand or understanding why we need this type of direction. How do you break it down to them? And, and what are your thoughts about how these corporations or these tech companies who are thriving off of of how we are building our own coalitions or, or nurturing our own communities. I mean, you know, something like Facebook, for example, right? That's in our daily lives. We're consumers of this uh, tech giant. Do you even think that there it's possible for them to to contribute to what we need to do here in order to, to make it more equal? Okay, so that was two questions. The first, in terms of the disruption, yes. So I was one of the 14... Um, black folks who shut down the West Oakland BART station last year um, on Black Friday. And so I've been dealing with that question a lot, right? Well, what about the people who were inconvenienced? Um, And my response, our response is simple. We will continue to interrupt business as usual as long as the business of America is about killing black people. Mm-hmm. So if you were tired of your business being interrupted, then we suggest you get in, inside of this movement and do some work to make that no longer the business of America, right? People were talking about on that day, well, people had to go to work, people were going with their families. Well, Eric Garner's family, Mike Brown's family, Oscar Grant's family, um, you know, now Yvette Henderson's family, Sandra Bland's family, right? They don't get to be with their children anymore. 
They don't get to be with our children anymore because the majority of people in this country have sat complacent while America has waged war on black and brown and poor people in this country. So we're not going to stop, and we're not going to apologize for your inconvenience, right? Because being murdered, being stopped and first, being incarcerated, all of those things are awfully inconvenient for us, too. The other thing is, is that people like to hold up now. It, it amazes me, actually. It's quite fascinating. Hold up the civil rights movement. Right as this great moment in America's history. Mm-hmm. So when Rosa Parks refused to get up, was she not interrupting business as usual? When the Montgomery bus boycott happened, was that not interrupting business as usual? When black folks went into restaurants throughout the South and sat down and refused to get up, did that not interrupt business as usual? Right. But all of those things were necessary for America to take the baby step that it took towards you know racial um, equality. We're not there, so I said baby step. Right. So it, it boggles my mind that people can hold up um, King, right, and the Montgomery bus boycott and all of those things, but then demonize the activists of today. It's almost like they're saying, what else do you want? You should be satisfied, right? At least you're not slaves no more. Mm-hmm. At least your kids can go to school with my kid now. So sit down and shut up. Mm. So that's, that's the pushback, right, is, is that if you look at what's happening today, and if you support what happened then, then you must be on the side of righteousness today, which I think is another reason why that, uh, that phrase, the song, has become an uh, anthem of this moment in time. Which side are you on? Mm-hmm. And you have to make a choice. Are you on the side of your convenience, or are you on the side of justice? Right. Well, I answered that question for myself, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's let's uh, let's end with 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 talking about how these you know new tech companies who seem to be talking about how their their you know their company and their values are all about justice and it's all about equality, but they could be doing so much more, in my opinion. But what are your thoughts about you know occupying the Bay Area here and what they can do, and if they can't even be on our side? Well, I mean, I want to point out one very clear, concrete example with Facebook. Um, the the Black Lives Matter pages, right? These people come and trolls and leave the most hateful, racist, awful comments. And we report them to Facebook, and Facebook's response is that it's not in violation of their policy. Mm-hmm. Which amazes us, right? Because is, hate speech is supposed to be a violation of Facebook's policy, but they're unwilling to engage in this conversation or push back on on people that are, are leaving hateful um, messages on the Black Lives Matter pages, right, that, that are all over that. And so to me, that's a statement to us about what Facebook is and is not willing to do. So what could they do? Yes, they could ban hate speech, right? They could, they could stop it from happening. In terms of investment in the cities, that really is on the city to demand from these developers and tech companies. It's actually not all, I mean, it'd be great if businesses came in and said, well, I just want to give 25% of our, <laughs> you know, our profits to that, to that, to that. But what, if, what we know about business and what we know about capitalism is that that's not going to happen. Right. What we do is elect people in the office who promise to look out for our best interests. And so it is on Libby Shop, it is on Edley, to say to these companies, no, if you are going to do business here, this is what you're going to give back. Right. And the lie that they tell us is, oh, well, then businesses won't come. No, businesses will come. It may not be that business, but if that business is not willing to invest in the city, why do we want them here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's it. Kat, I really enjoyed my time talking to you. It feels like it was just five minutes ago, but it does. I know. Well, thank you, Mr. I really appreciate you having um, me on. Can I just please encourage people to, you know, if you haven't planned an action, plan one for the 96 hours. You don't even have to come to with folks too folks council meeting if you don't want to from friday to sunday and then have everybody come on out um 11 o'clock a.m the corner of 14th and broadway for the second annual reclaiming king's legacy march we would love to have all of you there thank you so much and for more information head to antipoliceterrorproject.org kat thanks again and please you know stay uh, stick you know stay with us stay connected uh, i'd love to have yeah. you back on Oh, thank you very much. I'd love to be back on. Have a great day. Thank you. The Michelle Meow Show continues after this. Don't go away.
Nicolina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and uh, our producer, Fong, is in studio. What's going on, Fong? Hi there. Um, so normally we air a, a, a second interview um, but I think what I want to do is I, I found the interview that I did with Jean Cordova, who I mentioned um, yesterday. Jean Cordova being the LGBT activist, uh, lesbian, uh, feminist, um, writer, author. I mean, incredible person. She passed away this past Sunday. And so, I I, I mean, it's inc an incredible honor. Like, I'm still stumbling. I'm still sad. Um, still mourning, you know, just kind of the loss that our community uh, has, has, I guess, has been impacted by. And um, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I get really corny about um, and really geeky about is when I meet people in our community that I know in my heart uh, who have contributed such a great deal. Mm. I used to, you know, as a kid, I used to get all like, really gung-ho about celebrities and stuff because I thought that they were really important. They were on TV. Everybody thinks that, right? Um, but I, I don't think that people in our community recognize that there are people as your neighbor or mm -hmm. people who are available on Google or people who have written a book today who will go down in history and be someone that has changed the lives of so many people. I think sometimes we take that for granted. Yeah, I mean, think about it right now. We don't know until maybe or until folks tell us that we're making a difference by doing the show. You, you'll never know. Oh, well, yeah, well, we, I we mean. kind of know. I, <laughs> I don't know if I am making a difference other than the fact that I think having honest dialogue and conversations with people who are doing things in their community or who have a position on something, even if you don't agree Mm -hmm. you're going to learn something from them, mm -hmm. right? And that's the purpose of this show. And so some of you might be shocked, you know, coming up later on the program, I'm not sure when I'll air it on radio, but uh, it definitely is going to be on the television show. Um, I'll be speaking with Kim Davis's attorney, Ooh. Matt Staver. Um, and those two have been somehow invited to the State of the Union address, the President's State of the Union address, uh, and so for those who don't know, Kim Davis being the Rowan County clerk out in um, uh, Alabama, um, who had basically defied the law, the Supreme Court's decision in terms of marriage equality being 
you know, a law here in this country. And so she did not issue same-sex marriage licenses. In fact, did not issue any marriage licenses, even, you know, any couple there was out there. And for someone like Kim Davis, she sees that as civil disobedience. She's taking a page out of the radical book, which might uh, to some be the leftist book, right? Um, In saying that she's sticking up for her right, her right to religious liberty or freedom and whatnot. Uh, Although, you know, in my opinion, it's just a bigoted argument um, because (laughs) you're excluding a group here in in the country in which some of us who have used civil disobedience, it's been to be inclusive Mm -hmm. of a minority or an oppressed group. Uh, I hardly think that Christians are oppressed here in this country. (laughs) Well, Yeah, um. <laughs> it, it's it's just funny when I mean not just funny because um, I try to look at the other side and always you know kind of have a critical lens, and then sometimes when you talk about folks like Kim Davis and um, some topics, you know we're recognizing privilege because we understand that. But some people recently I looked up online and they don't think that it's a, it's a thing. They don't think yeah. that privilege is a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well. It <laughs> And no offense to the, uh, you know, white folks listening to us. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs> or Christians. Um, and Christians. But it, it, when we talk about white privilege and someone says to me, well, Michelle, like, I'm, I don't uh, have privilege because I grew up poor as well. It really takes away from the fact that um, what white privilege actually means. You know, mm. obviously here in this country being white. Um, it's, it's, it's not the same as being someone of color (laughs) and you have privileges that people of color do not have. Uh, that's a different show. And uh, now I'm just kind of rambling and talking about various things that we will discuss here in this program and the point of it. Um, I just, I, I, if you have an opinion about what we do talk about, please let us know. Let me know. You can head to michellemeow.com. I think now, you know, will be a great time for us to, to, to air the interview that I did with Jean, um, I mentioned on my Facebook page, if we're not Facebook friends, you can send me a request. I like to kind of field out the trolls. Uh, but, you know, that there was a memoir that Jean Cordova wrote, and it's titled When We Were Outlaws, A Memoir of Love and Revolution. And in that memoir, Jean is very upfront and open about the relationships. And she goes in and out of this voice of being personal and then, and then political. And I really feel that the memoir... Um, captured just her as a human being and and her being a butch lesbian and and so many different identities being placed in this book that it came at a time in my life in which I was contemplating suicide um and death was a constant thought for me and it was this memoir and it was going to see the play which uh, I just happened to be in West Hollywood at the time that gave me a sense of purpose that gave me this this feeling that it's okay to be butch, um, it's okay to fight fight and stand up for what you believe is is right, and it's okay to to do that um, and and feel supported. That you should also ask for the support from your own community. So I'm going to play the interview uh, right here and enjoy. It's Rural Radio, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Today's activists and freedom fighters send petitions for signatures within seconds of a touch of a button uh, behind a computer. But back in the 70s, it meant protesting, flag-waving, articles written anonymously behind a pen name, and most importantly, risking your life daily. Our next guest was more than an activist, having been involved in the gay liberation movement, the women's movement, as well as the new left. She founded the Lesbian Tide, which is the first ever known lesbian publication to circulate from Los Angeles, was a reporter for the free press, and from the sound of her new book, When We Were Out Laws, she's dated a few hot chicks mixed in with changing the world. Let's welcome Jean Cordova. Jean, welcome to Swirl. Well, thanks for that introduction. <laughs> and hello to everybody. <laughs> Yes, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the book, and uh, I, I don't even know where to start because there was so much about your life as well as um, the contents of the book and how it was written. It was beautifully written, um, in which I want to talk about. But I guess we can start with Morris Kite, if you will, and how he was your mentor and how he became your enemy, um, if you don't mind. Yes, I think finding mentors and being mentors is very important to queer activism, and no difference in that since the 1970s. 
So when I was 20, I guess maybe 23, one of my mentors, my chief mentor at the time, is a character I write about in the book, and he was male. I have a few other mentors that are mostly female, but uh, Morris Kite was sort of the leader of the gay movement in Los Angeles, kind of on the stature of uh, not Harvey Milk, but grassroots uh, Harry Britt up there. So he was a big deal, and so when he seemed available to mentor me, I was grateful, and what I wanted from him was that he had a great strategic mind politically, and I was young, and and I wanted to be an activist for the rest of my life. Uh, When he started calling me and asking me to do things with him, um, I did, and he was a very complex guy, uh, very intelligent. He had been uh, marched with Martin Luther in the uh, down in Selma, so he had a lot of activism from the civil rights movement under his belt. And for me, being a, a gay activist, gay rights, was my first activism. So I didn't have that background. You guys had created, uh, you know, the LGBT center uh, essentially, and he was on the board, and it eventually became yeah. your enemy because there was some friction about hiring. Hiring on uh, or lesbians or lesbians or women, actually, right, women in right. uh, well, what to I didn't management. realize at the time, of course, is that naturally um, him being a gay liberationist and me being a lesbian feminist, that we were bound to clash at some point because they're really kind of two different philosophies. So uh, in 1975, when the board and Morris fired 16 employees of the gay center, most of us were lesbians. Um, that started a battle also between me and him. And it's, uh, it's hard being betrayed by your mentor. It happens sometimes because no two people are the same. And it's a lot easier if it happens over politics than it does personally. So, yes, we did get into a terrible row the lesbians didn't take being fired, uh, laying down or sitting in, so to speak. We launched a strike, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a big battle. And um, it was one of the things that taught me that you can't guarantee that your mentor and you are always going to see things the same way. Were you ever afraid that you were going to be a part of the uh, great divide, you know, between the LGBT community and the, the, well, mainly during that time, I guess it was the lesbian and the gays, did you feel yes. that you were betraying, you know, your your efforts in the gay movement by addressing some of these issues? Well, y- yes, and and I say that's one of the reasons I put this particular story in the book. It was very hard because I grew up thinking I was a homosexual in the 50s and the 60s, but as it turned out, I became a feminist, and so uh, that led me to different decisions. And there's always been a split. Uh, It was much more heavy back then between gay men and feminist lesbians, Um, or lesbians of any kind, because, you know, uh, one half of us is is male, and that means a lot of things culturally and sexually. And the other half of us is uh, female. And just because we are thrown into the same movement by the straight world, because we're same-sex on same-sex, sometimes, especially back then, I think straight women and lesbians have a lot more in common with each other. Wow. <laughs> wow. Than we did with gay men. Yeah. Michelle Miel with Swirl Radio here. We're speaking with Jean Cordova. She is the author of When We Were Outlaws. Um, it is one of my favorite books now, and I've been reading it through and through. The first time I read it all, and then now second, I'm, I'm going back and uh, finding things that I didn't understand before. We were just talking about an event that has happened in the book in which you'll have to get the book to actually find out. But I wanted to move on, Jean, to um, the uh, Patty Hearst case and your involvement in that. Is it okay to talk a little bit about that? I know the rest is in the book. Did you actually get to meet Patty Hearst? Uh, I didn't. And actually, as I say in the book and in the play, I wasn't so much interested in Patty Hearst uh, as I was her one of her guerrilla mates, uh, Emily Harris. Who, I mean, Patty was sort of, you know, uh, bourgeois, the daughter of the um, publisher of the San Francisco Examiner. And so, you know, a member of the uh, elite class. 
and she got kidnapped by this guerrilla group and held hostage for 14 months, and it was a big national story. And, and then one day on television, Patty Hearst appears in a bank robbery, and so everybody's wondering if she's got Stockholm Syndrome or if she's turned into a guerrilla <laughs> freedom fighter or she's just a hostage. So that was a big dilemma I covered. And uh, Patty was kept in San Francisco. They were all arrested um, on September 18th in 1975, and that's how the book opens. But one of the, uh, the three of them, there was uh, two people with her, uh, Bill and Emily Harris. And I was more interested in Emily Harris because here was a, my age, 25, college-educated young person who had decided to give her life to the revolution, including robbing banks and accidentally uh, killed someone. So I wanted to know her. So I got to know her. I pursued and I wrote a letter asking for an interview. And she only accepted two interviews uh, in California at that time. Wow. One was Ms. Magazine and the other was me. And um, so the last chapter in the book talks about my interview with her and our discussion about why is it that two people that are similar in age and background and education, both from the middle class, her and me, why does one of us end up in jail for most of her life and the other uh, ends up outside of jail but being an activist? Where does that split come from? And at the time, it really seemed like uh, the 60s, there was going to be a, a revolution in the country. You've, you've done so much. You've seen so much since you know, the 70s until now. And obviously, the gay movement is still happening, um, as well as uh, the women's movement. I mean, what do you think of all this, where we're at today? We're fighting for marriage equality within the gay movement. And then here in the women's movement, we're still fighting um, you know, sexual health. Right. Well, that has uh, really stunned me in the last month or two as the Republican thing drags on the comedy show. But um, it worries me a lot, too, because uh, the things that my generation fought for and that your generation ought to be able to take for granted has come back into discussion like birth control and uh, abortion. And basically, who gets the right to tell a woman how to use her body? Mm -hmm. Is it the state that gets that right? Is it her husband? Uh, is it her? And, and it's very worrisome that that's coming back, and I worry that young women don't take it seriously, and they think that, okay, I'm in control of my own body. I know that. I can go to the store and get, you know, birth control, and I can have an abortion if that really, really comes to that. And so I hope you're all ready to refight that battle if we have to again. Thank you, Jean Cordova, for stopping by here on Swirl Radio and sharing a piece of your life and uh, also for highlighting your book, in which I think everyone should go out and get a copy now if you don't have it. Jean Cordova, the author of When We Were Outlaws, you can get that at Amazon or uh, most bookstores, right, Jean? Right, right. Barnes & Noble or eBooks. It's also on eBooks. And the subtitle is A Memoir of Love and Revolution, and that's what the book is about, love, love stories and revolution. Jean will also be up here Sunday, April 29th from 4 to 6 at the Montclair Women's Cultural Arts Club in Oakland. There'll be uh, film scenes from Outlaws on Stage, which is a mini-play based on the book, when, we're, when We Were Outlaws, A Memoir of Love and Revolution. So if you'd like more information about that, we'll post it up on our site at swirlradio.com. Jean, thanks again for hanging with us here on Swirl. All right, and if anybody wants to write me personally, just look up my website and get an email address. I'll be glad to answer questions. Perfect. Thanks, Jean. Thanks. Thank you so much. For listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. 
The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in and uh, for listening to this very important conversation, especially as we head into uh, MLK Recognition Day. Um, and so I hope that you will consider being a part of the action, however you do it. Um, we're going to end the show with BB Sweetbriar's Don't Ya, her new single that is, uh, that, that's coming out. It's being released on the 15th. I, I can't talk today. I don't know what's going on. I think I had too much coffee. Anyway, for everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. Enjoy BB Sweetbriar's single, Don't Ya. Yeah, yeah. 